Matt, what is your best experience so far in education? Easy, mate. Must be last year when I was out in South Africa teaching as an international volunteer. Learned so much about myself, both personally and professionally. And to be honest with you, I can't wait to go out and do it again, but this time somewhere new. Well, that's ideal. I might have something right up your street, mate. I know a charity called Learn, Achieve, Become, and they've got some class projects over in Madagascar, Kenya and Central America, and they look to provide free education to children who need it most. Sounds absolutely perfect, mate. Where can I sign up? Well, firstly, go and check out their website at www.learnachievebecome.org and you can get all the information on there about their projects that they've got ongoing right now and also how to become a volunteer as well. Perfect. And where can I find them on Instagram? At learn underscore achieve underscore become. And make sure you're following at the Teachers of Tomorrow so we can guide you in the right direction if you want to become a volunteer. Hey guys, and welcome back to the latest Teachers of Tomorrow podcast episode with your co-host, Matt, soon to be Mr. Aldrin. And your co-host, Sam, soon to be Mr. Gregory. And we are here to share our journey, experiences and views on all things education. Yes, guys, welcome back to another Teach of Tomorrow podcast episode. And today, me and Sam, we are joined by, well, it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by uh, former head teacher and now fledging academic, uh, Claire Birkinshaw. Claire, you know, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to get you on today. Uh, we had the privilege of listening to one of your lectures on the topic of gender um, through our university course, which... Uh, me and Sam actually decided to take on further into our into our studies, and you know, having connected with you from there, it's um, you know, it's, it's inspiring to hear your story, um, and it's just really great to talk to you and get you on. Um, so you know, from us, thanks for thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh to come on the pod. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I feel very very honoured. Thank you. No, no, you uh, don't you don't, don't need to feel feel, feel honoured. I mean, honestly, after after that lecture from university. I mean, yeah, the reception that, that that you got from people and from the conversation that we've had with other people, it was it, it's fully deserved that. Yeah, it was the teams. The teams chat was popping off. It was like ding 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 afterwards. <laughs> so that's always a, that's always a good sign to, uh, to yeah, show yeah, that. That's, that's something from you know from my perspective. I'm like you know I I don't get to see like any of that. So you deliver <laughs> something and you just go, well, what do people then yeah. think? I mean, and I think that that's probably something which is missing by them working digitally as well so if we're in the lecture theatre then you might then be able to then see people's you know uh, responses in real time and so you're then relying on feedback that might then come uh, later or you might then you know not even think that you could like discuss this further it's almost where it's truncated you've been given your knowledge go away think about it and never ever then you know connect with Claire again but then to come back and now say well can we do then a podcast feels like it's an extension isn't it it's almost like we've we've done the uh, the lecture now we just want to have like the informal discussion with yeah. some of the themes that yeah. maybe arose from the lecture absolutely yeah and it's this is the the beauty of, of human communication interaction you know which i think over over time we've unfortunately um missed recently but you know fingers crossed soon we'll be we'll be back face to face and uh and we'll be able to do this in person so it'd be great um before you introduce yourself to in a bit more detail to our to our listeners um if you want to follow claire's journey on twitter at c underscore birkinshaw 
Um, and obviously do follow us at TFT pod on Twitter um, at the teacher of tomorrow on Instagram. If you are a fan of the podcast, do go and give it a rate and review on Apple podcast. That'd be hugely uh, thankful from us. Um, but yes, Claire, do a better job than I have in terms of introducing you because I feel like I've, I've massively undersold you here. So <laughs> just give a give an introduction to your fledgling career so far in, in education. <laughs> um, uh, well, um, went to Hull University. Do you want me to go back that far? You, you go. You go for okay. wherever. <laughs> All right. So went to uh, Hull University to study geography. Well, actually, I uh, originally it was geography and uh, geology. Uh, but then geology then disappeared. And it, oh, sorry to say this out loud, but it's because I just got really anxious about having to being able to identify. I think it was something like 140 different bivalves or something. So these are uh, like seashells to, you know, apologies for any geologists out, out there. And so that can help you to identify the age of particular strata and, and so on. I just thought, oh, there's no way that I've then... I don't care that much about uh, bivalves to be able to identify <laughs> technology. And was sidelined, uh, but I and I absolutely uh, adored geology because I did it at A level. Um, I still adore like geology, um, but I just yeah I just dropped geology and just concentrated on geography. Left Hull University. Well, did a PGCE at Hull University and then became a teacher and started off teaching humanities and and then moved to uh, a secondary uh, another secondary school became head of geography and then uh, had a variety of different roles in a number of different secondary schools um, over a 26-year period which then culminated as a headship within a pupil referral unit or a alternative provision academy uh, left the left that academy um, and uh, then became a lecturer at Leeds Beckett University, uh, lecturing in childhood studies. Um, and even though my job title says lecturer in childhood studies and education, the the education side at the moment is um, I, I tend not to be like brought into the education for very much lecturing within different aspects of uh, childhood uh, and it's just I, I mean it's it's absolutely phenomenal well from, from my perspective it, it really really is phenomenal to be given an opportunity in which then to to really start to think about well what do we mean about childhood uh, you know that it seems like such a simple and straightforward question like what is a child and these ideologies of childhood to them um, you know research that to track where ideologies have certainly within uh, within England how they have evolved over time um, I just find it incredibly fascinating and then having the opportunity in which then to share that knowledge with students it's just at times it really does feel like the best job in the world I mean it just it just it really really is and I think from my perspective from working so long in education and then possibly not having the knowledge that I have now or recognising that I didn't have as much knowledge as that I then thought that I then like had. Um, I just think it's, it's just absolutely fantastic. It really, really is. I think it, I think it stems back to that kind of lifelong learning, doesn't it? I think when you're in one thing I've noticed is that when you are in school and you are teaching, like you, 
to to be able to go and, and research and do that further further knowledge and further learning is so hard because you you've got such a busy a busy life as it is you know in school you know it's obviously very full on so to, to take that time to go out and learn more and research more I think you know it is it, it would appear to be so much more difficult so I think when you when you obviously step away or you change change your career and yeah you're obviously now into the, the higher education sector it gives you an opportunity now to to learn and and study whilst obviously uh, delivering these lectures and, and you know building that knowledge base um, which yeah I think well for me it's, it's something that I want to I want to end up doing further down the line that's kind of where I see myself purely for that reason really I just find it fascinating yeah absolutely I think for me it's where we can reflect and you know just because you know the world you know is constructed in this particular way it doesn't necessarily mean to say that that is the you know the optimum way in which it should be constructed whether you could ever reach an optimum or I mean, I don't, I mean that's <laughs> that's a big debate isn't it you know because there's always going to be a variety of opinion about that but it gives you an opportunity i think in which to uh, to you know to evaluate or reevaluate uh, the trajectory of human existence you know to look at it from a particular like viewpoint and also to consider about you know when we're working with children working with young people and those families and fellow professionals as well how do we work you know uh, alongside each other what types of knowledge do we then want to you know produce or construct it together and why do we then consider this then to be like useful uh, and what and you know what, what's the purpose behind it and how does that then for ourselves as human beings what does that mean to us as uh, as humans and it isn't just that it sticks with us as humans it's the fact that we are connected with you know the existence that you know, on the planet um i'm thinking you know that the trajectory of human beings where will human beings be in 100 years time 200 years time a thousand years time and so on what part do we play in that evolution Oh, well, where would be? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I was just going to jump in then and ask the guys to, because obviously we've spoken about this, um, this ongoing learning process and like researching, especially like when you leave education, for example, do you feel like within education, because Matt's stated that he, that that's something that he would love to do, but I'm like, I, I'm fixated on being, being a teacher hopefully climbing the SLT ladder, but I don't want to be disconnected from that ongoing research and stuff. Is there in schools, and as you climb that ladder, or even as a class teacher, is there still opportunities to still be uh, aware of current research and conversations that's, uh, that, that's going on? Do you get presented with, with, the, with these opportunities? Uh, yeah, I think that, um, well, I think there are two ways in which then to look at that. So one is that if you are thinking about, you know, the organisation of the school, first of all, you know, the, the teachers' professional development. It's, it's not just teachers, it's everybody that works within uh, the school community, that there should always be this continuing professional uh, development. Just because we're doing something now at this moment in time doesn't then necessarily mean to say that that is the right way in which then to do it, or that our knowledge can be and our skill set can be improved further. You know, recent research that's just come out is that the... You know, the, uh, more children with autism uh, than was previously then thought. So that then, as educators, 
well, how do we then support children with autism? You know, what would be the right things in which then to do? Do we then need to adjust our teaching style, the way in which learning is then presented? You know, the organisation within the classroom, within the, the school ecosystem. So it should always then be ongoing. Um, yeah. And But I, I also think that for a, from a personal perspective as well, you, you know, your love of learning should never, ever stop. And that enthusiasm, because people get drawn into that enthusiasm that you have for learning. So it should always be an ongoing project, um, you know, in terms of yourself, but also, you know, with the people that you are working with as as well. Um, so I do think that schools should, and I know that they do, you know, in thinking carefully about the, the training that they then offer. But I think we, are, we have to be careful as that it, it isn't always then this idea of just oh we're, you know, we're doing this because we need to improve our exam results and that's the really hard conversation that schools you know do have is that yes there are improvement of exam results but exam results are the be all and end all of human existence we know that they're important but there may be other aspects that maybe we can then look beyond that which actually may have a knock-on effect about improving you know the the educational experience within the school well, yeah, and I think um, these are really nice, actually, because you, in terms of your own personal journey, um, you had an inspiring journey yourself going from uh, going through your transition when you were in a headship. Um, I think it's inspiring for people, not just in the LGBTQ plus community, but also people away from it. And I think it, it presents a real positive example for, for students um, who may find themselves in a similar position. Um, how do you feel that that personal journey that you've gone through um, has really influenced your teaching career and, uh, you know, your passion for that research? Um, I mean, the, I suppose deep, deep roots of resilience, the fact that um, to transition within uh, the workplace, um, but also then after leaving, you know, my uh, secondary education then working in higher education and you know it does then present some like challenges so I think the first thing is that that we, we can all we can all learn from people who demonstrate that resilience but where does that then resilience then come from um you know so we might you know and then consider that you know, how do we um develop this um like deep roots of re resilience. Um, I mean, that's the one thing that, that possibly other people then can learn from is their the resilience. I just had a, a sense that um, my role as an educator didn't then come to a conclusion that it would, that what was the, you know, that it would then continue. It just then continued in, in, in different circumstances. Um, I think it's, given me opportunity in which then to reflect uh, upon that, because the, the, there's no doubt about it. You know, you say out loud, you know, this is who, who you are. You say that I am trans to like individuals. It's just like, you know, some might like, okay, right. Brilliant. And then other individuals might, you know, to take a step back and go, well, what does this then like mean? And so some people might find that really disconcerting and that those are, you know, that, that's something that I'd always then acknowledge that that would then like, like, you know, would happen. But I think that, you know, this is something that I have been aware of since, since childhood, really, uh, for, for a long, long time. But it, there was always, you know, throughout life, a, a, 
to suppose like a, a journey of doubt is so well you know how mm. is this possible you know can this be that you know, like me um you know what what does this then like mean maybe I, I just need to just sort myself out and you know just thinking that maybe it would just then go away but it's always been like part of me. And I was, interestingly, I was talking uh, yesterday, so I was um, included on a panel and I really thought about it before in this way. It feels like a lot of my life has, it's, I've lived inside my own head. And I don't know if other people experience this as well. It's almost where you've got this inner voice, this inner voice is then having a conversation with yourself continually about, you know, but this is me, I just want to then talk to individual, but it's almost like you are not allowed to then talk about it because of what may then happen next. So it feels that I have existed in silence. And it's not until like recently where I feel that I have then either given myself permission in which then to talk, or that the fabric of society, the blueprint of society is then shifted in such a way that it is then given other people to then step out from the silence. And actually, to then speak about, you know, their, well, I don't know whether it's an interpretation, their sense of self and how it, uh, how it is for them and to be able to then speak that aloud and to then share that with other people without repercussion. Although having said that, you know, to, for some individuals, there's no doubt about it, there is repercussion and I have experienced some of that repercussion as, as well, which is understandable because, you know, it, it just how we then see like the world and then for other people to articulate, well, actually for me, I, you know, I don't then see it quite in these, in these ways. And this is, this is then for, for this is me and saying that out aloud, um, you know, as I, a, think, I, think, to other people. Yeah. I think that's the, that's why I use the word inspiring because coming from a, an era that you, that you've worked in and grown up in compared to where we are now, I think presents challenges in itself, not just in, in gender but in in a in a wide range of social issues and i think now we're at a really important stage um where people are talking about about all issues and all areas uh, more openly now and i think it's it's so important that we have these these discussions particularly within education because as as teachers and educators we you know our main job is to is to prepare children to be adults you know and to be accepting and to be uh to be diverse and to be and to follow you know be who you are i think that's that's something that's really important you know for all teachers and all teachers will, will agree with that and i think that you know your your journey in itself i think is a is a really important example of why it's it's so important to to educate you know our children um and adults and you know be be open enough to talk about these things and and you know celebrate them yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, there is that aspect, isn't it, that when you certainly are working in education, you know, being a, like a, a role model. Um, and I would probably, I, I, you know, on reflection, I do think it has influenced possibly the way, when I say possibly, you know, the, the way in which I've then like worked, um, knowing that this was inside uh, me, knowing that other students within school, not necessarily that, that you know, that uh, students would be trans, but just how that some students are marginalised. And I do think we should reflect upon the silencing mechanisms that, you know, we, we, if you think about our society, uh, our culture, how silence is very much a, a feature of 
our existence, isn't it? You know, we don't talk about these things. You know, there are certain things that we just don't then like talk about. It only feels like now that we can talk about, say, like gender, we can talk about sexuality, we can talk about race, we can talk about like disability, we can talk about social class, but we can talk about mental health. And, you know, if we go back into the past, then we wouldn't have had those conversations. It was there, but people maybe had different ways of like coping with those really wide issues such as mental health and they try to cope with that in different ways. I I, I passionately believe as well from what kind of what Matt said and, and what Thor saying as well, it, it is our responsibility to have these conversations. It's our responsibility to have these conversations so people feel more comfortable about them and we can actually have a discussion and, and educate ourselves around these different areas of inclusion or inequalities within within our society and, and like you said if there's like silencing mechanisms taking place then that's only going to make the situation worse because the longer you stay silent about something or the longer that for example me, me and matt don't have a conversation about this it's easier for us to feel even more uncomfortable because we're, we're, we're getting to the point about oh what is it what, what can we say how do we start this conversation and this is why me and matt wanted to really follow up on the lecture that we had from you because for us as trainee teachers this platform that, that we've got allows us to have this these conversations with with people like you and it's just fascinating it's inspiring and for people who listen to our podcast as well who might not get the opportunity maybe from their university to have uh, lectures like yourself on and to talk about these issues it's really really important because we've sp- we, we spoke with a, like a pre-chat before um actually do doing the um podcast episode that which is basically a podcast in itself yeah yeah (laughs) where where, where basically gender doesn't start like later on in life it it can start early on in in childhood and as primary school teachers and practitioners we need to be aware of this we we need to be comfortable to have these conversations with people uh, higher up in school there might be people higher up in education right now who are still not comfortable talking about gender issues and stuff and it's just, it goes back to this point of normalizing these these conversations, becoming comfortable with them because at the end of the day, that's actually going to help society and, and education. So with the the points that I was just talking about, it, it flows really nicely into our next question, and it's quite a issue within education at the moment, and it's quite a good question. And I was wondering if you could give us your opinion on it. It's, what does inclusive practice mean to you, Claire? And do you think it currently exists in the education system? Remember, um, it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't have to be right or wrong, Claire. Okay, it can just be your opinion, and that's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, right. So, inclu- inclusive practice then for for all is the. Um, it's that, isn't it? It's it's the word all. You know, we either include all students. Or we then have a tagline which then says, you know, that this school includes most students, the vast majority of students, nearly everybody. But actually, there's always then going to be some that we then don't include. And and so that just then doesn't work. Um, And it it presents challenges. But the reason why it then presents challenges is because of the conditions that are then created within society and the way in which then schools are structured and then like organized um and i think it, it doesn't 
there's no doubt about it. It creates challenges for for schools then to include like everybody because there will always be at some point someone will say, well, if a student then does that, surely they should be then like excluded, and that's where you then have to consider right. Okay, so when we then say um, inclusion for for all. What does that then like mean? Are we then saying that you've got then one building, but then we have other buildings, which is still then including like students. And then are we then supporting the like needs? So, you know, really what should be happening is that children just do not disappear uh, from, from school. You know, they, they fall through the net as the term may then be. So do schools then, do they include um, all students? Well, no, I don't think they do. I, d I do think that some students do. I think they do fall through the net, but there are different reasons as to why they may then fall through the net. So you know, some children that may be uh, in the looked after then care system. So if they are then moved from one locality to another locality, then that then is then going to present challenges for the education system. You're also then presented like challenges within the education system. I'm not suggesting that these are children that then fall through the net, but if, if an option is then home education, then how do we then ensure that, that through home, home, uh, home education, then all children are then being supported in the way that that home education is then set out uh, for those uh, children. Um, you, you're talking about across the whole of society, aren't you? Millions of like children. Uh, how do we ensure that that then works uh, properly? Um, so I, you, I would probably. Sorry, God. I was going to say you probably would have seen it first time being a being a head teacher. You would, have, especially in a secondary school, I guess that inclusion. There's so much, so many students in a in a secondary school, isn't there? And there's so many diverse areas and backgrounds. And I think obviously. Um, you know, to, to include everyone in that, whether it's behavior issues or like you say, it could be people in care or it could be from, um, you know, a foreign country, for example, to, to include all these people into the, into our education system is, is, is going to be hard. So see, you know, where, where could we make it better? Where could we, where could we improve that? Well, it becomes hard, doesn't it? It's to do with the resources, isn't it? So if you've then got like, you know, a school system, which is always trying to maximise its efficiency, you know, and then set on a particular pathway, um, then when children are introducing that who have additional needs and what really we mean by those additional needs is that they put a possibly a stress or a strain on the resources that like, exist within that school system. That's when it then starts to become like, like uh, challenging, doesn't it? You know, so in terms of classroom size. So if you only have so many desks within a classroom, so many like chairs, and again, you know, the, 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 the building is like, you know, you try to make it as efficient as possible. I mean, that's the way in which the timetable then works. It's to do with the numbers of like, you know, staff, it's to do with the students then in there. But then clearly some students do have like additional needs as you've then pointed out. If you then have children with say who are refugees that have then come from a war-torn like environment and you don't know whether that those children are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder so then how do we then support those like you know students and so there has to be a recognition that actually children 
have additional needs. And as much as you like to think there is this idealized view of like childhood and why you might then say, well, you just need to be more resilient. You know, you need to just keep that post-traumatic stress disorder for like to yourself. It just doesn't work like that. But there can be other factors as well, you know, for, for children with alcohol fetal syndrome. How do we then support children with alcohol fetal syndrome? How do we support children that are in the looked after care system that maybe have a profound sense of, of rejection? How then do we support those uh, those children? And that then not only, I think, comes back to the skills that we then have as teachers, but it's also the resources that are then uh, made available. And while some schools may seemingly be doing like really, really well, it's well, you know, has it actually? Or, or have we then seen some children then moved like elsewhere? And so it gives the sense that everything is in fine, you know, really, really good order. It comes down to, you know, superb behavior management systems. You know, there is a brilliant efficiency within the school, you know, through learning walks, through lesson observations, through the whole like accountability, then this school is running as it then should be. Ofsted then come in, they then give it like outstanding and so on. But yet we still find that there are other schools that exist which, uh, you know, are presented with multiple like challenges. And it's not that this is just now, this has been ongoing for quite some time. My, 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 my question then as well, in regards to, because we, we've spoken about how some children uh, fall through the net and we're maybe not inclusive to all children. So that not stem through, uh, stem from teachers, but are we, as an education system, are we inclusive to all teachers for example and if we were would that not help with solving um, these problems of not allowing children falling through the net essentially if we were inclusive to, to all because well, I mean we, we've had prior conversations about this it's not just about the children it's actually education as the whole the whole system being inclusive rather than just fixating on, on the children yeah, absolutely. So I think what you then have it, you know, for children to see themselves reflected back in the classroom, you know, if we then have an ideology of childhood, what the ideal child looks like, then you know, equally we have an ideology of what the ideal teacher then looks like. Um, you know, not, not just in terms of say how they look, uh, in terms of like their knowledge, their skill set, and so on. Um, and I, I think that what can happen is that schools may think, well, we would like to, but you know, we've got, you know, we've got our exam results then to think about. We we haven't then got time to nurture these members of like staff. Um, and it might be, well, what would parents then like say? You know, parents are demanding this particular, you know, quality of education, and then we're then trying to make the school as representative as possible. But this is what we're, you know, uh, uh, for example, like uh, degrees. So if you, you know, we might then see difference in, uh, in degrees across like, you know, the population where some demographics then gain a higher uh, degree than another uh, demographic, you know, a head teacher might say, well, we only choose the best candidates, you know, this is their like degree. And so you're not then taking into account that this is something which is maybe systemic over, you know, a long period of time. And this is why we then see the results that we then do. And so that then just perpetuates that. And so it needs a real strength 
to then step out from that and say, well, actually, we need to ensure that our school is, is really representative. And then you face with the dilemma that, you know, a school might say, well, it is representative, it's representative of our community. Well, right, okay, so but is it representative, say, diversity that exists within, like, the country? So, well, no, but it's representative of, of our community. And again, that, because of just uh, geographical disparities with where demographics then exist within uh, the country, you are then left with that uh, challenge as well. Um, I, I yeah. think this, you know, so, so I think we can always, there will always be situations where, you know, you present something and you say, right, this is what it should be like. And then someone will then, you know, obviously create a counter argument and say, but yeah. we only want the best candidates. Well, with the, the, all the best candidates are always these ones that have gone to maybe say this particular yeah. university, they belong to this particular demographic. So you just sustain it, you know, that, that's it. How do we ever break that cycle then? I yeah. Think, yeah, I think, it, I think there's more. I was just going to say, I think, I think it's interesting in, in one of the things that, that, that you said there, Claire, in regards to, it goes back to the point of um, schools are driven by exam results, but why, why should that matter to inclusion? If someone is good at their job, it doesn't matter who they are as a person, where they're from, they might add other, other experiences. So if a school term, turns around and says, oh yeah, but we need to think about exams and stuff, I just don't. I just don't see it as a, a, a as an argument because, but, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just. But, 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 sorry. So what I would say to that is that, but that's because we have a we have a system that's then designed in a particular way. Then isn't it? So we the created. Well, how do you measure the success of a school? How could one school then be seen as being a good school, whether another school is then not being then seen as a good like school? So you have to create some form of metric. And so your yeah. metrics then come like down to, well, exam results. Okay, right. So there we can then, you know, judge one school against another school and say that the school is doing really, really well. And that school is not then doing as well. And then it goes beyond exam results. It then goes like to attendance or it then goes to behavior st- uh, statistics and so on. The, the way in which you address that is you either change the examination system or you change the metrics in which yeah. you measure, you know, what then happens like within... Uh, schools it, it's but it, it becomes seductive for all of us doesn't it you know because we we, we have a we have a society that is framed around a hierarchy isn't it so if you know people at the top of the hierarchy there has to be a justification as to why they're at the top the top of the hierarchy and then where for other people who were then lower down the hierarchy again a justification is why they're they're in that particular position within society so you base it or frame it around like a examination uh, results. I think you can be, I think, you know, obviously there are going to always going to be certain barriers in place, which unfortunately due to the, due to the fact we are a capitalist society and we have meritocracy and we, you know, we are a Western nation. So when people come over from, from poorer countries, naturally they're already up against it because, because of the, the way that we do, uh, we'd employ people for example unfortunately unless they come over with a degree or or whatever straight away they're already up against it so i think there's always going to be barriers but i um, in terms of like inclusion in schools i think even though we have these exam you know exams in place for whether we believe they're right or wrong um it's about presenting uh, opportunities for people to to express themselves in whatever subject that is and i yeah. think that as teachers we we are able to still do that. I think we choose, we have a choice to include um, certain cross-curricular 
areas due to probably our passions, for example, um, you know, whether we're interested in something like sustainability, for example, I know that when I have my own class, hopefully next year, if someone gives me a job, that'll be a, <laughs> that'll be a, you know, an ethos that I'll try and put through, through the core of my classroom, because that's something that I care about. Now the teacher next door probably won't because they, they'll do, they'll, they'll care about something else. So naturally that's what their kind of values will, will be. Sam will probably do, you know, PE, for example, it'll be very much an active space because that's something that you care about. So I think that we do have these opportunities to, to be inclusive, but I think a lot of it is, is driven by our, our values and passions. And I think that can sometimes, you know, be detrimental to that, that practice. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, what you touched on like there, where you bring your, yourself into the, to the classroom one of the challenges is that you know words that are then used within school is consistency so that's often often branded around so we need to be consistent and you know because you know students might say well in this particular classroom I can then do this you know so we in Matthew's classroom it's brilliant because we then talk about sustainable things and then you know another student might then say yeah but in Sam's classroom we then do like active stuff and everything why aren't we doing more active stuff in like Matthew's lesson why is it that and so we then create that difference so we're drawn to well we need to make everything consistent we need to make it the same so we homogenize uh, thinking that that will be better but it's the way in which we frame then the discussion about that difference, isn't it? That actually in different classrooms with different teachers, then you have to recognise that the teacher in front of you is a human being. And that human being brings in like different qualities, which then creates this school ecosystem. So we either want to create school ecosystems that are all exactly the same, or we then recognise that there is a, a difference within them. But then again, if you then create that difference, then some people think that that form of difference is a better form of difference than that like form of difference. So yeah, it, I mean, it's, there's no doubt about it. it. You know, it presents challenges, but I would certainly say that from yourself as a classroom teacher, when we're talking about inclusion, then you can aim to make your classroom as inclusive as possible. And the first thing that we then do is, is how we build those relations, isn't it? You know, with, with, with students and recognising that for some students, you know, if, if within ourselves as human beings, if we remove ourselves from places that are stressful, so, you know, we might have heard, you know, uh, fight or flight responses, I would suggest that there's maybe a few other forms of responses that we then... Um, you know, we respond to in, in stressful situations so it isn't just fight or flight there can be like freeze so you know you shut down and you may flock so you actually you know go to like other people as well and so by being part of that crowd that then gives you a sense of safety or you may fawn over somebody you know you're like over complimentary and you're then trying to protect yourself so that they then don't attack you it's then to remove that fear isn't it away from like class like from the classroom itself so that where students have the opportunity where to then try things and if they make mistakes it's not actually to worry that they have made a mistake it's how do you orientate the student back into okay you've made a mistake it's a you know it's a learning aspect how do we go back revisit that without this fear of failure and then we continue then to you know to attempt then try uh, uh with with this um so so i think that we as teachers, we have to start individually 
you know, with ourselves and then ensuring that through our practice, through our behaviours and the, you know, the design of the activities within the classroom, everything about that ecosystem, if there might maybe a micro ecosystem within the wider uh, school environment, is that we work to make that as inclusive as possible. And I think um, you just touching on the mistake side of things is is really important because I think there is that fear of of making mistakes, particularly as we're obviously moving towards results. It's a very results based thing for children, and, and especially in secondary school as well. We all know it's about it's a lot of pressure on data. So I think children and pupils naturally are more aware of making mistakes. So I think it is in terms of the inclusion side. Um, making it well, acceptable and sell and you know making it okay to make mistakes and, and making it you know a learning process rather than being frowned upon yeah absolutely i think that you know if you think that if you know if all students then if they all got you know perfect exam results how then do we differentiate you know if everyone then gets with the same like exam results and i think it's how do we give opportunities for students to demonstrate their you know, their passions, you know, that space for learning, you know, so we, it's almost like we've narrowed things then down. We don't give them, sorry, I'm sorry mm-hmm. to use the term, like the bandwidth, the bandwidth in which then to, you know, to explore like other uh, ideas and surely then to meet the needs of like the nation, that diversity, those different ways of thinking, tackling, you know, problems, coming up with solutions that maybe we'd not thought of previously, seeing the world through different eyes, then should, that is surely something we should be nurturing. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And it, it goes quite nicely into into the next question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to merge the two questions together, Sam, so I'm going to kind of pinch a bit of yours as well. So sorry, mate. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the discussion on gender, um, where do you stand with it being sort of socially constructed? Um, through society and in terms of the conversations around gender particularly in school do you think that it's been improved recently over the years or do you think we've still got you know a long way to go um okay right so the first thing is just to think about is that when we see someone with a baby you know one of the first questions we ask about the baby is mm. is it a boy or is it a girl and, you yeah, know so, well, why? Yeah, yeah. Why, why, why why do we need to know that at that moment <laughs> that then, you know so like what because there there is a whole like framework of you know i suppose like a knowledge, when I say knowledge, like these ideas, isn't it, of like, okay, you've got, all right, so you've got, you know, so this little bundle here, it's a boy, right? And then you project, you know, this child's life and say, right, you know, so these following things, they're going to play football. You've already probably designated that they're going to do this sport, they're going to follow this football team, they'll probably have this job, you know, all of those like things. And the same like as well with a girl. So I'm, it, I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of that already. I haven't even got a kid, and I'm, I already know that if that boy comes out, he's already supporting QPR. Poor lad. <laughs> he's already he's already playing as many sports as possible. Poor lad. Even yeah. if you don't like him, so I'm I'm part of the problem. <laughs> I, that's a, but you, so you have this based on your own experience, based on what society probably has a sense of value or worth with. 
that you recognise that if we then see, say, societies again, that these are values, isn't it? Because you will then think, well, you know, how then do you have then conversations? You know, how do men have conversations with one another? Well, they don't, they don't then go in and say, look, this is how I'm then feeling. It's like, oh, for God's sake, right, seriously, we should have got like three points at the weekend or there's something like that. So there are these constructions, aren't there, about, you know, how sport then for like maybe for or has an emotional purpose within uh, within us as, uh, as human beings. So I do think the, the trajectory, and it's really, 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 really powerful. It really, really is, because instantly, straight away, you think, because, you know, if you've then got a boy or you've then got, a, you know, a girl, then you start to allocate toys. Why, you know, so you, you not only do you allocate toys, not only do you allocate clothes, but you allocate, say, like a name, you allocate expected behaviours, you know, maybe their interests, their hobbies, everything is within like there and you've probably created this this uh, like I said this trajectory and that is incredibly powerful but it's also I think it's got really really deep roots uh, uh, as well and if we think about how society is organized and certain attributes that are valued within society so you know you go back to victorian britain there was real concern about what was happening in europe in terms of the birth rate in terms of their like expansion you know that britain's expansion you know it's colonial expansion its ability in which then to fight war what would then happen so we were concerned about the number of children that were being born the concern like you know the health of children but also to do with the military about you know whether that was the navy or whether that was the army about you know this was before the air force or you know obviously you know in victorian like britain but who would then fight mm. and you know so so the, there are aspects of that and then with that you then get you know the development of sport and the role that sport then you know played within victorian britain and how that then has left a, like a, a legacy that endures within like the country. But we also have to think economically as well as to how identities were formed like in the past. You think about particular forms of work, forms yeah. of work that we would rely on like stamina, would rely on endurance, but would, would rely on a mental toughness as well because of the danger that was involved in that particular activity. Now, if we were relying on say coal mining or or like shipbuilding or steel production, you know, these really, really hard, physically demanding jobs, but also jobs which meant that mistakes, you know, you could lose your life and yeah. having to manage that terror like all the time, then because it then gets associated with masculinity, we then see it as being uh, masculine. And therefore, we have this particular construct of masculinity. So then with masculinity, we also then get femininity as well. And then, you know, there, there will be degrees of what we consider to be like feminine and how that relates to the economic structure as yeah. well. And I think that what has happened is that that has left a, a legacy. So when we talk about, you know, courage or we talk about valor or, you know, we talk about like strength and so on, it still exists within like school communities. There's still attributes that we think are then like worthwhile. And probably, you know, if you think about uh, say sport a lot of our society when we think about football teams you mentioned QPR instantly if you then said QPR you would say you you wouldn't think about you know the the the, the woman's uh, QPR team you think about the men's QPR team so we have geographically 
uh, created almost a, a masculine framework of like society based around sports teams, which have the like legacies from ideologies that existed in the, the past, which I think, you know, schools are permeable and we ourselves as teachers, we will have these like ideologies as well. All of that then goes then into school and where we then see boys have to behave like this and girls have to behave like that. And within that, you know, one example might be that boys might punish other boys and even girls might punish other boys by saying you throw like a girl. Well, why is that then seen as a derogatory like term to use? Well, it must be because you have in your head this hierarchy that boys throw better than girls. That is a that is a you know that is a desired skill, and girls do not have that then desired skill. And it isn't you know so it isn't just that example. There'll be other examples as well, and so like within school, we then have to consider whether we are subconsciously helping to nurture that, helping to produce that through our own behaviours and through the content which is then delivered within the curriculum as well. And whether whilst we say we're trying to be gender equal or gender egalitarian, the reality is that we are perpetuating that because of the way in which then school is is designed and then orchestrated and then to step out of that and say well actually it could be reconfigured in a different way then you know again other people might be really really you know d- disturbed by that and there was one comment so i feel like i've just gone on a bit of a like no, 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 no. there's one comment that one of like the, the students then uh said to me and it was through some, some of their written work and said that within primary school they you know they love uh, primary school they liked how boys and girls then you know within teams they were then playing together and then as soon as they went to secondary school there was that sudden like separation yeah. and then mm-hmm. there was that the girls it was assumed that they would want to play these particular sports and the students not me that said this student then said this they just called them pink sports and then boys get blue sports and then that that was it and so we then get this then separation and I just wonder if then you know for schools whilst I'm not then saying that you know all all sport then should be uh should be mixed whether there are those opportunities in which when where sport can be then like mixed and where uh boys and girls particularly in the teenage uh years are then playing together and what we then do as teachers is to ensure that you know, where we have banter, that, that this is then respectful banter. And we then don't move into those like sexist or misogynistic ideologies, which can like, um, you know, exist within yeah. school. And I've, I think with everything that, that, that you said, and kind of like reflecting on, on my viewpoint as well, is that the, the conversation around gender, the way I've always thought, it, I've always looked at it from like a biological standpoint like a boy is a boy or a girl is a girl but from like having the lectures with you or even doing the research that we have for like our assignments and stuff and having the conversations with you now about it it's not it, it is so socially constructed within our society that actually the reason why it's so complex and why there's such a definition of a boy and girl is because the, like these these traditions and values have been embedded for hundreds and hundreds of years like i found it quite interesting that, that, that you spoke about like football, for example, like when, when you talk about football, people who support a football club, there's been a history there that people are proud of the history and they associate that with 
with, with men to, to a degree. And the conversation around gender is so complex because you're having to completely and utterly change people's thought process on not just society now, but history as well. And I, it's it's not and and I've been doing it's not it's not a biological argument because a lot of people will be will be like well your biological makeup's this then you are you're a boy but actually our society and where these misogynist and sexist comments comments come from is the way our society has been created mm-hmm. and making what a boy should look like and what a girl should like essentially I just it's fascinating it is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is that we're tied, it's tied economically, isn't it? And, you know, again, if you go into yeah. like into the past, you think about um, how people may have migrated around the country looking for, uh, for work. Again, it's difficult for us to imagine what that would be like because of the, you know, the, the society that we exist in now and how society, you know, through uh, the, the welfare state, post-1945, how that reconfigured, how society then operated. But prior to that moment in time, you know, people would have then, you know, uh, migrated. Home ownership would have then been different. You know, people would have rented, like, uh, properties and maybe gone to the place of, you know, where work is. But once you then, once you place, like, you know, you put down your roots and you buy, like, property, then maybe you just don't migrate in the same way. And so geographically around the country, we will then have, whether we recognise this or not, that, like, legacies of particular forms of masculinity that exist based on economic activity that existed in the past, you know, whether it's, uh, say, steelworks or whether it's coal mining, whether it's the fishing industry, whether it's textiles and so on. And that ideology of, you know, toughness, of like strength, of behaving in particular ways, because that was a desired attribute for people then to have, then I, I suspect that that still is reproduced within families. It just may be, it, it's, it's expressed possibly like differently now because of a yeah. lot of those jobs have then disappeared. And so, but there are echoes of maybe those masculinities. And that's maybe why, you know, when we look at some communities and think, well, what, why? Why have we then got boys who are maybe not as successful as we would then like? And possibly... Uh, and one explanation for that is that there's still this adjustment then taking place or there's still this ripple effect and the echo from the legacy of previous activity and where, the, you know, we, we haven't then adjusted. What does this then mean? You know, what, what, we often tie ourselves to these economic circumstances. And you can see that when children were born before in the past, it's that you would have to toughen up. How would you survive in a coal mine if you are then going to cry? How would you do this if you are not then tough? You need to be, because what's valued in this community is a person's toughness. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, again, a fascinating point because you're reflecting on old old jobs and we're looking at maybe the physical attributes of people, how that determines their gender. And then on the flip side, you look now, and, and as you mentioned, you know, a lot of them jobs are redundant now. And I think a lot of jobs that we have now are very much um, away from that, them attributes, you know, strength and things like that. A lot of them are to do with intelligence, you know, which 
you know, isn't really formed by gender, it's, it's informed by your learning ability. And I think this is what we're, we're getting to a stage now where, you know, you really mentioned a really good point there about certain boys underachieving and maybe because, because they're not academically as, as gifted, but I bet if, you know, you chuck them out onto, onto a building site, they're unbelievable. Or, or for example, and I think, and I think for me as well, it's about acceptance because for, I think two people who obviously I identify as their sex, I think it's, it's easy. It's, it's probably hard for us to underst- maybe understand how people would feel if they didn't identify like that. But for me, it's more about accepting that like their gender is different. They, they see their gender is different to what, to what their, their body's given them, for example. And I think, you know, it's, it stems from, you know, making that, you know, acceptable and, and celebrating it and having the, the conversation. And I think that, you know, whether whether you want to go into a building site as a female or you want to go into, um, you know, a fashion, fashion as, a, as a male, that's fine. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, what, what sex you are. That shouldn't define what, what job role you do and what and how you feel as a, as a person. I'm just going to... Yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean, that's it, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's finding the things that you are... You know, that somehow, I don't know why, I just really, really resonate uh, with you. Um, so why do I like particular, you know, styles of music, you know, with mm-hmm. films or particular like books? I don't, I don't know. Uh, there are just some things that, that just seem to, you know, strike. I don't know, just resonate. Yeah. That, that, I mean, it's, it's really hard to me because you're going into a, person, a person's consciousness that we are products of the geographical location that we were then born and we were then like raised. We were products of, you know, historical moments and all of that, all of these different like ideologies, they're just, you know, how do those then get absorbed? How do you develop a sense of like self? How then do you like, you know, your interactions with other human beings as well? How do they help to shape your sense of self? I mean, it is, I mean, you're talking about human consciousness um, and it is an incredibly complex like aspect. But I think that one of the things that we can then start to like to do is where we've already put people on this trajectory. Almost as soon as they step into school, it's then thinking, well, you can only do this. This is like your limitation. And you know, possibly where we see those differences in you know, the number of girls that do, say, physics. You know, we still see that it is a subject that's dominated by boys. Well, why is that? Well, do we then need to go right back to when students then step into school and do we need to ensure that those conversations that then are said oh I can't do this because I'm a girl or I can't do this because I'm a boy it's like well no right we need to then change that and then say that yes you can then do this and it's again it's the same with like activities we probably don't recognize that children you know police each other's like behaviors but that behaviors of you know things that maybe they've observed at home you know things that possibly they've observed on like television or through literature that they've then read through you know through children's stories and so on all of that gets incorporated in so you've got these you know these smaller minds trying to grapple with what are the rules of society what does it mean to be this particular category of person how do i fit into this and then what then happens if i'm then going actually 
<laughs> that's yeah. right then that's not quite sort of like me so what do we then do do we then just you know do we stop do we panic about that or do we give the space in which children can so you know express themselves in different ways and so what we might then do is go well no we don't think that that's then like right or whatever and then we move into like you know suppression one so with suppression then you are whether that's then like adults or whether that's then children, whether that's family members and so on, it's then suppressing uh, children's expression of their sense of, of self. And I, I just think it's, it's absolutely, it's everywhere, isn't it? Where we have these idealized forms and those idealized forms of what we then should look like can create anxieties within individuals, but they're also then dictating what, what is available, you know, what we, what we can then do within uh, when society, what we're then given permission uh, to do, it's how we break free from that. And I think, as, as you touched on, on on there, Claire, we we seemingly start to address this problem um, right at the beginning by going back to school and educating children and teachers as well, um, and to have the to have these conversations. And you've touched on it there, but as well on our, one of our previous episodes as well, we had professor Jonathan Glazer come on and he spoke about the importance of a whole school approach, but he was speaking about to, towards like uh, mental health. How important do you feel like it is to have that whole school approach of inclusivity uh, surrounding gender? Cause Matt touched on earlier, how, for example, we have different passions and, and values. Like for example, like I'm, I'm massive for like, active learning. Matt's for example, really big on like sustainability and stuff those, those two views are anything unactive basically anything where i don't gone. have to move <laughs> so yeah how how do we go how do we go about this uh, the issue surrounding gender and, and what can what can we do what what is the best practice going forward well i think that i think that schools have to recognize that it's um it's an ecology it's an ecosystem you know where you know as much as we don't like to maybe see ourselves as organisms then we are in fact we are biological organisms um, and our bodies behave in you know in interesting ways you know for instance you know stress so how do we then get um, you know stressed in particular circumstances that I then touched on before you know those five f's of how we then may respond to stress but recognize within that that approach and if we then say in a whole school approach well what does that then like mean and and see that the way in which we treat gender or the ideologies that we have with regards to gender may in fact cause some of the mental like distress or mental health distress that we then see within schools whether that then um, is it expressed visibly or not? So you might then see with some children, there could be uh, anger. It doesn't necessarily mean to say that it relates to like gender where they might be thinking about their own uh, gender, but certainly within you know the behaviours, the set of circumstances. How do we then create the like the ecology within the school, give permission for boys in which they're able to then talk about their emotions, possibly to help boys that see that their whole identity shouldn't be based around this concept of being tough, but based around, you know, that they don't, you know, that they are, you make 
this term hard, you know, that I'm hard, <laughs> don't then mess with me. But that's how what boys don't do, isn't it? I mean, I don't know, you know, when like you were at school, how boys were possibly placed in hierarchies based on their fighting ability, that you don't mess with this particular person because they are then like hard. Well, where does that then come from? Why do we think that that is, you know, that is a desirable trait? And possibly that might reflect communities in which people then like living, where being hard or being tough is, is actually a necessity. Because if you are, if you don't demonstrate that hardness or that toughness, then you become vulnerable and you possibly could be then come like terrorized. So it's almost like we create these arms races based around being sort of like hard, but it's giving permission for boys in which they can then talk about their emotions and, and so on. But equally, we also then have to, you know, with, with girls is where, how do we ensure that the, the space that g girls are then in, that it then doesn't become dominated by boys. You know, that one of my students was doing some work within a school and it's where boys behave in particular ways. And what then happens is that they they dominate the time, they dominate that learning experience with the way in which they may dominate, say, responses to questions, they dominate that in terms of like physical space so when they then come into a classroom you know they it's so you know that they try to make themselves appear wider and bigger than they like are and how that then suppresses girls identities within like classrooms so I think that when we're considering that whole approach I mean, we really do have to step back and say how actually does our school then operate? But what about us as teachers, you know, particularly senior leaders? How do we talk about this? I mean, do we use terms like, oh, man up? You know, so do we actually then see female teachers then saying this to like one another, saying that then to, to boys? You know, has it then filtered within our language that, again, it reveals how boys are then seen or how men are then seen within society and then with, with girls? And then how do we then support our students that are non-binary as well? How do we support or recognise, uh, you know, um, a variety of, of gender uh, expressions where everybody then feels safe and comfortable so yeah I do think it has to be you know when we say this whole school approach what exactly does that then like mean and do we is it about holding up you know the looking glass and recognizing how our own behaviors may produce particular types of behaviors where students uh feel that they have to behave in particular ways because that th they see that as being uh, that it has some form of value on it. So if they're trying to, you know, move themselves up in the hierarchy, this is what they think they have to then do uh, in the hierarchy. But I think that that can have a detrimental effect. You know, it might be that some students feel that they are really, really pressurised to be perfect all the time. And that isn't just about academic performance, but it also can be in terms of their appearance as well. So an aesthetic yeah. labour that you know some students then have to uh, to uh, carry out but i see that that isn't something that just then applies to uh, to you know boy sorry to girls it applies to boys as well in fact it applies yeah. to all uh, uh, students isn't it it's because of how we create this value system of what's seen as being um like I don't know. The, Successful the or the norm, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. I mean, if I was going to say something, it would probably relate to, we think that it has prestige, and with that prestige, mm. it has power. Somehow, that these, these individuals are seen as being desirable. Yeah, definitely. And I think the really interesting 
word that I picked up from that was that, you know, you talked about language, the language we use. And I think that, I think the, in terms of language, the way we, we talk about things and the words we use, I think that in itself brings a, a fear almost to people who maybe are uneducated in, in terms of discussing topics of gender or topics of race or topics of mental health. Um, I think, you know, the language side of things, maybe the lack of knowledge and the lack of language, and the lack of terminology that we've been exposed to through our education system in, in previous years is almost preventing us from or preventing more people from having the conversation through fear maybe of of saying the wrong thing and i think that now is why it becomes so important as teachers that we use the correct language we we teach our children the correct language and terminology and to to not be scared about if you if they say something and it's incorrect that's that's fine because they're learning yeah i i think that what we i think I seem to have said this quite a lot this morning, I think. <laughs> we all think. We all think. That's what we're here for. We're thinking. Exactly, yeah. We have to demonstrate to students that we're on this, that we're all on a continuum. Just because we're a teacher, that doesn't mean to say that our learning has then stopped, that we profess to have you know, complete knowledge you know, that we are at one with the universe as much as we would like to feel like that sometimes <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, but, I, but to demonstrate that we still want to learn as well and to recognise that the nature of society is then like changed and it is then changing, isn't it? You know, the composition of society is different to how it was 20 years ago, how it you know is different to 50 years ago. And that's not something to be afraid of, is it? It's to recognize that that you know the environment in which you were then brought up in, it, you know, it, it isn't necessarily how society then looks now. So possibly you may then make some like mistakes, but that's not oh, okay, you're making some mistakes. It's what happens next, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so you know, are you then making mistakes because these are just because of those circumstances at that moment in time based on your knowledge uh, base? Or are these mistakes actually not really mistakes, but they're then demonstrations of power? It's where you're then trying to somehow demonstrate that you have power over others to remind people of their position mm -hmm. within the hierarchy. So I, I think that it's, it's essential to us, uh, for us as teachers to demonstrate to students that we are still curious and that we, yeah. we anticipate that we will be forever curious and that society isn't static or, you know, the environment, the universe, it's not static. It just isn't. It's continually moving. Well, I, like for, for, and evolving, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like just listening to the this conversation this morning and stuff and one thing that i do struggle to get my head around at times is why why can't society just be that little bit more accepting towards these these issues that in my head shouldn't really be be issues i, I just it's just it, it's just easy to have, have have a conversation in in my head about about things that you maybe not comfortable about and create creating a society whereby you are uncomfortable has led to these issues becoming more oh, i'm trying to think of the word more not issues normalized not, they're not yeah, issues not, are they anymore yeah, they're just yeah they're just part part of part of life part of part of the world we live in um i think i think that kind of stems from 
um, what Claire said about changing and evolving. You know, if yeah. you look back 50 years compared to where we are, where we are now um, in the UK, we're we're very lucky in that regard when you compare us to other nations, which is still living in ways which are so traditional and, and you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, they still have them traditional values. And I think part you know whilst we're definitely not perfect of course we're not but you think even over the last 20 30 40 years where we've come from to where we are now um and you know just the amount of conversations that are having now and the amount of movements that are in place um and you know the amount of of, of people that that are having discussions and are far more accepting and far more aware of of different different areas of, of social injustice i think is you know, is, is a testament to kind of where we're going. And, and I just hope that, you know, that trajectory keeps going forward. I think it's hard, isn't it? Because then certainly during Section 28, so, if, you know, just giving an example of this, that, you, you know, through, through Section 28, where you are then not allowed to talk about LGBTQ uh, plus identities within school environments, that silencing, you, you know, this is state yeah. silencing, isn't it? Through the um, um, where you know the schools were not allowed to then seem to be promoting homosexuality, um, and so you can look at the exact wording from that, and and so there was this silencing, you know, a state silencing of identities. Well, how then would you address, you know, homophobic bullying? Um, so what would then happen in schools? What about teachers that themselves? were LGBTQ, you know, they, they couldn't then ever talk about themselves within schools. The problem with that is that it meant that you're yourself then going through school, then you wouldn't have had those LGBTQ like discussions. It's almost like they don't like exist. And, and that then becomes problematic because that means that ourselves as then teachers, we then feel uncomfortable. Why do we feel uncomfortable? It's almost like there is this internal straitjacket on our silencing mechanism that exists with inside your brain, which then say, well, I can't say this out loud because if I do, what would then happen next? Because you're so used to not talking about it, it almost feels forbidden as, and taboo to then talk about it. And that's the whole point of that silencing mechanism. But what we see now with young people is they're much more open in discussion, not only discussing LGBTQ plus identities, but also how they themselves say that they, you know, are LGBTQ plus. And I think for, for some uh, young people, they might then say, but it, it's in flux. You know, they take a possibly a really philosophical uh, point to this and say, well, my identity is continually in, uh, changing. Um, we, we have to give credit to young people, whatever we might think of, about them, these are, they're informed, they care, they, you know, what you mentioned before, social justice, they do want to then see social justice existing within, within the world. And they are very aware of these, you know, major issues that won't just affect the United Kingdom, but will affect everyone on the planet if we, you know, if we consider the climate emergency. And so for us as educators, not then to talk about it, that you know, young people will see that and they will just go, why? What, what does this then mean? And I think that through our silence, they may interpret that as well. This is an indication of homophobia. This is an indication of biphobia. This is an indication of transphobia. This is an indication that you don't care about like the, the environment. Um, I think yeah. that this is where we can either do, we can continue the silence and, you know, demonstrate our unease or we can hold our hand up and say, I need to know more. 
why can't why can't we learn together? We're, we're here. You know? We're here right now. We yeah, we need to know more. You know? you know. So why why is there this high, this idea of hierarchy in terms of knowledge that you have the teacher? So the teacher has to know absolutely everything, and the student is then still learning. I'm sure that there are students who are probably sit down and go, actually. I have this knowledge and you just go, wow, that is absolutely and utterly amazing. Surely there is, there should be opportunities in which we can co-struct knowledge then together and learn yeah. off what, uh, one another and not be afraid of that rather than continuing with this hierarchy that we must have the knowledge and they then don't have the knowledge. I think, I th- I think it's re- really interesting what this, this conversation has, has presented in regards to Matt said about like where, where we've come from and obviously this act, Section 28 Act, which was in place, whereby actually essentially the norm for the, all those years was actually not to talk about it because it wasn't discussed at all. Whereas by now, like you see now with like young people, we are very vocal. We care about social justice. We, we care about equality. The thing, I think the thing for me that is kind of scary, I feel we're, we're on the cusp again of being silenced as a state again. I, I mean, I know we're deviating here, but with the the, the recent bill that's been oh, passed, here we go. No, but it's true. It's, tr- it's true. <laughs> no, but the, the bill that's been recently passed, it 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 surrenders our right to protest and effectively have a voice against social inequality. That 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 is that is true. That that is a that is a certain way of silencing protest and having a voice against issues within society. That's that's not that's not that's not my opinion. That. That is fact. That is, it's this. It's the same as essentially Mate, section twenty eight. <laughs> so I think that it's this. So I think we're we're seeking out we to create like an equilibrium in which we you know we can all thrive in that e- equilibrium. I'm not suggesting mm. that we then remove the you know the hierarchy uh, because you know people will have knowledge and experience which is going to be greater and superior to like other people's. It's the distance between. You know, if we then, I suppose, you, you know, use the term the lower end of the hierarchy to the hierarchy, then that then seems to have got really elongated, doesn't it? You know, so yeah. it almost becomes obscene, um, you know, yeah. the, the, this like hierarchy, and that, that then becomes like problematic. And then where you have the bulk of people, you know, down at the, the lower end of the, the hierarchy and the effect that that has on them. So, you know, when we consider health equity, the the life expectancy of individuals and knowing that this is, you know, as far as I'm aware, your one and only life, then why should your one and only life be curtailed by the, like the unequal distribution of, of resources? Mm-hmm. Uh, and those resources are, are, are different. So it doesn't necessarily mean to say like economic resources, but it can be resources such as green space. It can be resources as blue space. But it all can. Be, it also can be those resources which enable like an unfolding of like of the human, you know, our flourishing. And those might be uh, unequal in terms of like creative activities, you know, whether that's then dance, whether that's then theatre, whether that's music. Those different forms of human expression. And I think that that is something that we have to then hold on to as well it's that see that our who we are as human beings isn't shouldn't be completely and utterly anchored into 
economic activity, that there are other aspects of being human and we should enable or create opportunities in which, you know, for those to flourish. Sounds like I'm being really utopian, but I just think that that's better for society. And if we are then stifled from being able to articulate that the allocation or the, you know, the distribution of resources isn't as fair and equitable as it then should be, then that then becomes really, really problematic then, doesn't it? Yeah. No, I, we agree. You know, we've had many discussion about this, me and Sam off air. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it is about just presenting them opportunities for everyone to flourish, albeit, you know, in whatever capacity that is, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's as deemed as one of the lower ends of, of the hierarchy or at, at the top end, you know, and I think we, you, you talked about having a, a society where we, you know, we accept everyone you know whatever whatever role they do whatever how whatever gender they are whatever race they are whatever background they're from and i think that is the that in itself is the utopia not the hierarchy necessarily but you know for me that's the um that is the utopia in terms of accepting everyone's differences everyone's beliefs everyone's values everyone's um skills it's it's learning from people isn't it matt it's where you then meet a fellow human being and what is it about their life story which is then fascinating, you know, what, what can we learn from that life story? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, celebrating that diversity, you know, when it yeah. then comes down to, you know, like the, the menu of life, you know, you want the menu of life to be rich and varied, isn't it? You know, and there oh, is, yeah. you know, just, just because I, you know, for a quirk of fate, I happen to be here like now. That doesn't mean to say that my existence and where I am is in any way superior to like anywhere else. You know, and I think that's one thing that we, you know, we have to then like over overcome as well. Just because a society is organised or constructed in a particular way, doesn't mean to say that it is necessarily inferior to uh, ourselves. Yeah, um, so, absolutely. And that, and that becomes the, the learning like aspect as well. And I certainly think that when we talk about decolonialization, you know, is there a point where? you know colonists then arrived and the way in which people and you know indigenous peoples around the world were then living within their within their environment and when i say environment like you know within the ecosystem and if we lost some of those forms of knowledge which we should be going back to because actually they got to a point where they were living this you know sustainably yeah sustainably and harmoniously with the environment, even though to us, it might have then seemed, when I say to us, I mean that people arriving from you know, the United Kingdom, even to us, that might have then seen unfamiliar, might have seemed like alien, it might have then seen as somehow then being inferior. But was it? It's only because we think it's then like inferior, isn't it? Because we don't understand the reference points. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a fantastic message to kind of, to end the, the podcast episode on really. You know, we've gone, we talked about gender, but ending on that, that sort of, message about learning from each other you know accepting one another for our differences and similarities um you know learning from different cultures and celebrating it yeah absolutely sam and i think being open receptive as well and i think this is what possibly creates fear within some individuals is that why do we need to consume as as, as many things why have we there's like a seduction isn't there you know the allure of of wanting more and more commodities more and more items and we we think that our lives become richer and more fulfilled with that well is it you know you know what can we then learn from other people from around the world which actually enhances or 
allows all of us then to to flourish in that sustainable way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what a conversation? What what a time? What a morning? I mean, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll Sam will obviously Sam will obviously will follow on from me. But um, you know, first of all, Claire, thanks so much for taking the time to come to come onto the pod. Uh, it's been honestly an amazing opportunity to talk to you and discuss really some really important topics around around gender and sustainability and you know social issues and within education um as well as obviously connected with yourself it's been you know an absolute a privilege um for, for and like i said you know for people to to follow claire's journey you know within education um use the use the twitter handle at c underscore birkinshaw um, and obviously you know do get in touch with us as well following the episode we always love to hear your feedback um over on at the teacher of tomorrow on Instagram or at TFT pod on Twitter. But I mean, yeah, you know, from, from my perspective, Claire, it's been, you know, a joy, a pleasure and a privilege to get you on today. So um, yeah, you know, from me, thanks for, thanks for taking the time and I'm sure Sam will, will say the same. Yeah. I just, just want to give a little quick message to the listeners as well. Honestly, th- th- this episode is, is so integral and important as for me and Matt as training teachers to be able to have these conversations, be comfortable with them. And if you have listened to this podcast all the way through it and you listen to me now, please like if send this on to, to, to somebody that, that you know to, and just say to them, listen, listen to this, this podcast episode, because it's incredibly important in regards to feeling comfortable with these conversations. And I mean, the messages that, that Claire uh, has spoken about, it ties into other um, areas of inequality and inclusion. It's about celebrating diverse, diversity. It's about accepting people for, for, for who, who they are. I mean, we have a responsibility as, as teachers. It's not, not passing children for, for the results, but actually making them good citizens, good human beings, and contributing to, to our society to help it make it more sustainable, to help it make it more, more acceptable and make it a more, more just place to live in and, and, and a happier place as well. And, Honestly, Claire, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast this morning. Thank you for sharing your experiences, your vast knowledge on everything. Right? It's been, <laughs> it's life. been yeah, it's been it's been an absolute absolute pleasure. And when you win the Nobel Peace Prize after this uh, <laughs> after this episode, we, we we expect a cheeky little shout out as well. So yeah, <laughs> but thank, thank you, you honestly. Thank you. thank you for giving me the opportunity. I know it's probably. In some ways, then you know, uh, uh, drifted. Uh, well, there's so much to talk about. You see, the thing is, it cannot be separated out. That's no, it. Exactly. You know, the yeah. idea yeah. that you just put it into a compartment and there you go. We just talk about that because it's it forms part of you know, it's it's all interconnected. It really, really, really is. Yeah. Um, and it's how we you know across society, isn't it? We we build those connections. We foster that social cohesion and recognise that we are in all, all of this together. Yeah, yeah. Some politician might have then said that, but <laughs> you know that. But we really have, and it's about us then taking control of that as well, isn't it? Not recognising yeah. that sometimes those people with power, they're not always the best people to then deal with power, and it's what else we can then like uh, we can then do. But this morning's been, it's do you know what? It's been so enjoyable. It's just been brilliant because it just feels like it's been a conversation, doesn't exactly. it, about yeah. these issues. Uh, whether it's a conversation in the morning or whether it's a conversation that happens at one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock, you know, when you just go. Let's just talk about life, meaning, universe, everything. Uh, it feels like it's been like this morning. So hopefully people will engage, will listen to it. I'm not suggesting that this is, 
the right answer to life. It's one of many answers to life, but this is just my perspective from, um, on life from, from where I stand. Can, yeah, I, can, can, can I just add, add in as well? Um, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Claire, but Claire w- was nervous doing the podcast with, with us to start with, but I, I'd like to think that just, like you said, just having this conversation, it's put at ease that that those nerves and stuff. And actually it, it has been really enjoyable just to listen and have a conversation about this. And yeah. We're not that bad, are we, Sam? We're not that bad. Yeah, we're all right, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, Claire. So, um, you know, I look forward to connecting soon and listeners do enjoy what we've just enjoyed as well. So yeah, cheers, guys. Thank you, guys. To get in touch with us following the latest podcast episode, head over to at the Teachers of Tomorrow on Instagram or over on Twitter via at TFTPod.